This episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films is brought to you by Tops. Voyage across the Star Wars galaxy with Tops in an all-new trading card collection, Tops, Journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi. Take a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi by visiting Tops.com to pick up your trading cards today. And if you're into the digital side of collecting, be sure to download Tops Card Trader app at the App Store and Google Play. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is great disturbance in the force. That's right, listen, welcome to episode 227 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website's second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the respirator breathing that most rebels hear moments before death, the EU guru himself, our count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. Thank goodness I'm able to to be here uh, after the week that I've had, and uh, may I say that every time, Mark, that I hear you give that uh, tops rundown at the beginning of the show, I can't help whenever you talk about the card trader app uh, to think it's uh, the card trader app. <laughs> See, now, and I've been playing it. For me, it's more like the card trader trap because I'm just like, I gotta get these cards. I started trading. Like, I started trading with the trader, with my other friends, like Riley and, and, and other patrons from Star Wars Report and stuff. And now it's crack? It, it <laughs> is. Well, well, okay, Scott Scott Hume and, and not Riley so much, but Scott Hume and a couple others, they've got so many cards that I was just like, just looking through their collection, I was like, oh my god, there's so much stuff. Because they've been, you know, I, I dropped off for, I think, a year in the middle of all of this. They kept going, and wow, like, the, the new cards that have been in, introduced, the illustrations and stuff, like, I was, I'm, I'm hoping... I put out some some deep trades yesterday. I'm like, I just want one card. I'll give you nine. I just want one. Like, oh, so there's some glorious ones out there that I was just like, I gotta have these. And for me, it's the illustrated cards that I really dig. Like, I don't know. There's some about like there are cards. Uh, I, I was asking for. I believe Scott Hume had the one that it was. I have the physical card of Dark Empire Two with Luke holding the lightsaber, and it's got the blue beam in the background. And he's got like the dark Jedi look, and I'm like, I gotta have it. I gotta have the digital. Like, I've got it. On physical but i gotta have the digital so yeah i'm hoping those trades go through yeah totally crack man sounds like it well so uh i guess i should say for those who don't know uh just kind of to give you a sense of what's going on in in the butler world now uh while everything else seems to be going fairly well we're taking care of some you know debts and stuff like that with summer pay and able to play jedi challenges and stuff like that and now we're on thanksgiving break woohoo one of the few weeks of the year where I don't monitor anything in the system for our uh, students, which basically means that I actually have a little bit of freedom. Uh, we began uh, going into this break now trying to figure out getting a new car because uh, last week on actually the day that Battlefront was released, the day the Elite Trooper edition of Battlefront was released, that's the way I will always remember it, I basically wound <laughs> up because I was going to do a live stream and I had to cancel it. 
I was on my way back from running some errands and stopped at a stop sign at the intersection in our town, Palmetto, Georgia, where about 60% of the accidents take place. And sure enough, a lady in an SUV tried to dart across the highway from the opposite direction that I was facing as I was stopped. She was on sort of the other side of this road that continues, but we both have stop signs and the highway in between does not. She tried to jump her way across, basically, got about halfway, and then got slammed into by a Lexus, which caused her car to spin a full 180 and come butt first into mine, completely destroying the front of my car. Like, nothing in front of the front wheel wells of my car, nothing in front of the cabin is where it used to be. It's all either crushed down or crushed in. So we're probably looking at my vehicle being totaled and uh, having to get a new one. Thankfully, our insurance is good. Um, It seems like the ladies' insurance... And was fine, but since there were three cars involved, they're having to do that insurance adjuster percentages of responsibility thing. My percentage of responsibility is zero, so that's fine. Because <laughs> um, I was just sitting there, man. I never even met these a-holes before. <laughs> but yeah, so that'll be our uh, uh, our Thanksgiving break, figuring that out, and then shortly thereafter as we try to get a, a vehicle for me and get the rental car taken care of in the next couple of days. Thankfully, though, I mean, I've kind of come out of it with a sense, and even from really the moment it happened... It's been less of an emotional anger or upset thing and much more of a, well, crap, now here's this thing to have to deal with. So how do we approach this as problem solving? Because thankfully, no one was hurt at all. Wow. You got two people in one car, three in another, and then me by myself in mine because Jody was at work. Everybody walks away unscathed. It just makes it a problem to be solved and a pain in the butt rather than something worse. So, uh, and, and that was emphasized, kind of hit home for me the, in the last couple of days. I want to say it was yesterday, right before Jody and I went to go to lunch. We saw a uh, a message come through from a friend of hers uh, to explain why Jody had to take the long way home from work to be able to get to me so we could go to lunch. And it was that at that exact same intersection, there had been a four-car wreck with at least one of the cars completely flipped over. So, I guess... I got very, very lucky, even though at times during this process it won't feel like it. But, uh, so yes, I'm very glad to be here because I'm actually, you know, here. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those things that puts things in perspective a little bit for you. Yeah. I, I remember when you had, you know, had posted about it and I was thinking, holy crap, you know, and then you posted the video and, you know, I mean, like, like your post was talking about, like, well, no parts of the car got inside, so I was safe. And I was thinking, like, you know, up to the tires sounds like it's pretty damaged. And then you show that video it's just like, holy crap, man. How did you like how? Yeah. You definitely had some angels walking with you that because yeah, your car took some damage. Like, and, and for that other car to spin the way they did, like, I mean, I've been in wrecks where in a matter of a few feet, just doing a 360 took us from 45 miles an hour to almost 90 when we hit the tree and it ejected my friend out of the car. So like, the 360 spins, like you would talk about how you couldn't understand if she had did a 180 or a complete 360. And then later you were talking about how, well, now they're figuring that the speed of the impact caused her to flip around so fast that the other car had to be speeding. Like that's, that's when that whole, it only takes a second comes in. It's like, there's so many factors that just play in that watching that video, man, I was really feeling like you definitely had somebody with you on that. Like, like just stay at the stop sign for a split second longer, Mr. Butler. Trust me on yeah, this. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like. It, I mean, it was raining pretty bad last night, so I'm thinking that somewhere where where they've towed the vehicle while we wait for the insurance to get pictures and everything, uh, with enough water coming down and no hood left, 
given the way that the inside of what used to be my engine compartment looks, I kind of think there must be a Dianoga living in there now, because it kind of looks like the trash compactor, more or less. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we're going to be dealing with that here in a little bit, but uh, thankfully, you know, unscathed, so we can talk some Star Wars at this point, and, and the worst health thing we have to deal with on mine is the fact that I'm all sniffly and, and snotty, so I'm going to have to remove a bunch of uh, me going <laughs> and sucking in snot or something as we record. That was fake, by the way. That one was. Ew, ew, snotty. Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we once again plunge into Star Wars Darth Vader's Shadows and Secrets. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. It is a period of uncertainty after the destruction of the Death Star by a four-strong rebel pilot. The Sith Lord Darth Vader has taken it upon himself to discover the pilot's true identity under the Empire's watchful eye. Using the expertise of archaeologist and droid expert Dr. Afra and a carefully selected crew of bounty hunters, Vader looted a stash of credits from an Imperial cruiser under the guise of an accident. However, Vader's new adjutant, Inspector Thanon, knows that all is not as it seems and plans to investigate the situation further. Meanwhile, Afra, along with the droids BT-1 and Triple Zero, are off to continue Vader's mission, chasing information on the Rebel pilots. So we're picking up where we left off last time. That's why there's not a non-spoiler segment. If you want to hear that, listen to the last episode. We're picking up here with issues 10, 11, and 12, which are parts 4, 5, and 6, the back half of Shadows and Secrets. So when last we saw Vader and Thanoth, they were initially doing this search to figure out who it was that sold explosives to take part in the heist to the people who did the heist. And doing that took them to Anthan Prime, where they were looking for an arms dealer known as the Dragon. And they ran into one of the Dragon's associates and figured out where the Dragon was, but we hadn't actually seen that confrontation yet. Now, that is actually where we begin. Vader and Thanoff have tracked down the Dragon, who turns out to be an Ortolan, which is not exactly an imposing figure for a, uh, a weapons dealer. And when Vader simply asks whether or not he will reveal to whom he sold those explosives, and the Ortolan confirms, yes, he will, Vader says, shame, and kills him before Thanoth can question him and before Thanoth can see what's happening. Thanoth comes in and says, curses, what happened? So we do know that he didn't see it. Vader has just managed to cover his track some. But Thanoth, being the master investigator that he is, is able to crack the safe inside the dragon's office and in doing so get more information that will help them bring down criminal activity in this sector to figure out the most likely hotbeds of activity and so forth. Basically, to bring down the Dragon's operation and possibly, again, possibly put Vader's cover-up in harm's way, but not nearly as much as if the Ortolan himself had been the one to talk. So now, Vader's going to prepare a strike force that the Empire's fist will be ready when Thanoth figures out where these hotbeds are, but Thanoth is going to go on his own to investigate because Vader is just a little too conspicuous. Now, as for Afra, recall that Afra and Triple Zero and BT-1 were tasked at the end 
of the last issue or the last couple of issues with figuring out the identity of the Death Star pilot. But as part of this process, they need to track down a guy named Kamadex Tan, who is a former mortician on Naboo. And to do so, Chelly Afra, we don't know her name is Chelly yet, but Afra went to the ante for information and we hadn't seen her confront that individual. There's a lot of buildup in the last couple of issues that hadn't paid off yet. Now we see the payoff as she and the droids break into the home of Commodex Tan on Naboo and begin to question him. They're backed up by some of those droids that Vader has now that they went to Geonosis and got that weird droid hive Geonosian droid queen. Making, yeah, it's like a droid factory, but that's making droids based on a queen doing it stuff. It's just weird. Anyway, the stuff from back in the last arc. Well, we find out that, uh, we found out a little bit about Chili Afra's background as she's talking to him about how cruel the universe is and that sort of thing. And she says some things that you could take as sarcasm, you could take as just dark humor, but she says them in a way that makes it sound like maybe they're actually true, or at least some of it's true, about basically her family background. We'll learn more about that and see what parts are confirmed or not when we get to the Dr. Afra comic series. But basically, they question this guy until he finally breaks. And what Afra is asking is what exactly it was that he knows about the child of Padme Amidala. And what she asks to get confirmed is the idea that Senator Amidala had given birth to a son. Now, he confirms this, yes, in a very kind of small print, low voice. Yes, she had a son, a healthy boy. They took him away. And it's an interesting moment because he is confirming that Luke Skywalker basically is the son of Anakin Skywalker, but notice he's not actually saying anything about Leia because Aphra hasn't got to that understanding yet that there were twins, so he may be able to give one child away without the other, which is a twist in the story that will have ramifications later, as of course Vader still will not know about Leia until at least Return of the Jedi, at which point it's basically too late. They kill Kamadex Tan in sort of thanks for his information, burn down his house, and take off to go meet with Vader, who they meet again on Anthan Prime. And she reveals what she knows, what she's managed to figure out. And when they meet, Vader confirms that they do need to find this pilot first because another Imperial agent is after him. Remember, that is Carbon. That's that Mon Calamari slash General Grievous type of guy from those pretenders who are trying to usurp Vader's position that were introduced back in the last arc. So they have to somehow find Luke before Carbon can. And thankfully, because of all the money they got from the heist pulled off in the last few issues, they're going to be able to make that happen. But as the issue ends, Vader notes here that his current adjunct is somewhat eager and enthusiastic, to which Afra replies, anything to worry about? He says, I have no fears. He suspects nothing. Even as over Vader's shoulder, we see a little probe droid watching their conversation. Bum, 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 as issue 10 ends. Yeah, I, I like this one. You know, we'd said before how this series is kind of shifting us into Afra, and, and this one especially starts giving us more of that background, like you said. Like, when she's talking with him and, and giving uh, him being the mortician guy, there's this great moment where he's like, the ends justify the means. Easy to say when you're not the means. And she's like, when you were playing courier for Naboo, I was trying to grow up living in a galactic war. I had a mom who pretended we weren't. 
homestead on the frontier, a brave spiritual life on a new world after a split from dad. The thing with wars, if the war doesn't get you, all the scum opportunities profiting from the chaos will. Raiders came in. Mom told me to run. I did. And in this moment, she's like holding up an invisible gun in her hands. So she can, so this, to me, the, the shaking of the hand leads to emotion, leads to truth. Like, I, I really believe this moment. I don't think she's lying here. See, I'm the opposite. I think that everything before this moment is the truth. But because of what she says later, I think as soon as she says, well, but I came back, I think that's when she's lying to make herself feel better. And when she was told to run, she did. But in reality, she did not turn back. She took the opposite tack of Jin Urso. She did not turn around and try to see what happened. So, and that seems to be somewhat what's borne out within the Afra comic in terms of the way her mother died. Okay. So yeah, I think it. I think she. I think there is a welling up of emotion, but it's like an emotional barrier because she's trying to basically tell the story. Maybe she's told herself over the years and tried to convince herself was true. Because then, shortly thereafter, she does point out, certainly she didn't die, blah, 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 right? And yeah. I think the certainly is the part that's true. And and you can sort of see that moment of break because... Okay. I mean, that's, the, that's where the branches of possibility could have been, right? She was told to run, and she did. So either she comes back or she doesn't, and it seems like both of those are addressed in some way. No, no, that actually makes more sense. So, so and that explains the second bubble, because she goes... You know, uh, but I came back with this awesome cannon I found in a cave when I was exploring and blew them all to pieces. And there's a second bubble attached to it. She goes, I saved everyone. So you're right. So, so the shaking then is the emotion of the fact that she didn't, she did run away. Cause then she goes, and dad came back and we lived happily ever after. And now I spend the time wandering the galaxy recovering awesome cannons. My mom definitely didn't die in a ditch on the dead end forest world where we only went to because she was so idealistic. No, you're right. Like I, I didn't think about it like that, but, but that shaking definitely made you feel like, you know, this was one of those powerful moments for her. And, you know, I, I was recently, I was talking with Bria from Kanji Class about what it is for Afro to be Asian, you know, because we were talking about how even in this comic, like she morphs and changes and stuff. And, you know, the, the intent was that she is an East, I believe it was East or West Asian, but it made me stop and think, you know, because I'm, I'm Swiss predominantly. And yet I also am Cherokee, Delaware tribe. Yet you would never be able to tell that from my skin tone because my dad's Swiss side is so, you know, just so blatantly white, right? So I was thinking about, you know, what traits really qualify people, you know, and I, and I don't mean it to be as a smart ass in the aspect of, well, there's no, you know, no Asia, there's no Switzerland in, in there. So what qualifies? But, but what are these aspects and, and what defines these characters in ways that we would recognize them from the real world without becoming too stereotypical? Because like Afra is a prime character where I would never have realized that she is supposed to be from Asian descent of some form or fashion by the way she's presented in the comic. Now, each medium is limited to what they have. Like the Clone Wars, I, the, the reference I bring up there is those lemur-type uh, creatures. They were basically the Scottish and Irish. They were using those accents. And that was the one aspect of that culture that was used for those. And it was the the verbal side. Well, you couldn't do that in a comic. You can only really do the drawing aspect. So there's these trade-offs with each medium that we have and it made me stop and think about that about you know well what qualifies as traits to be portrayed to us the readers that we're supposed to be picking up on these little cues that this character is supposed to be from you know that type of ethnic group and stuff like it was something that i hadn't really thought about but with afra is definitely one of those characters that i think about it more um you know like i said me being swiss like i was stopping to think about it, like well if they were bringing in you know 
Ar- Argus, I think he is from the Clone Wars. Like, if they were to say that guy's Swiss, like, what would what would qualify him to be Swiss enough for me to feel like, yeah, there's somebody that I I can feel like there's my representation in Star Wars. Like, it's definitely one of those things you don't think about that often. But then there are characters like this where it definitely makes you stop and kind of ponder it from time to time. Oh, he's opened a can of worms. So let me see if I can hit a bunch of things at once. Uh, let's see. The smaller items that stand out to me about this issue before I hit some of the ones that are that are bigger that you mentioned there. Uh, I do find it interesting that when she discovers the significance of the fact that, yes, there is a son of Amidala still alive, that her initial thought is that, wow, there is still a Naboo heir out there. I'm not sure that usually we as fans tend to think of Luke or Leia as a Naboo heir most of the time, and when we do, it's probably Leia. So interesting there. We have a good moment there of Aphra... Uh, when she's giving her report to Vader, saying, when he asks if she discovered anything else, she says, nothing relevant, really. I mean, he really loved her. Sounds like she was something special. And Vader's just completely quiet in the next box. You know, like, you can tell that there's a there's an emotional thing going on, but he's no way going to reveal that to her. I also think it's important that we see here that we've got the little floaty, floaty spy cam, floaty little probe droid out there, which I think is the shot that explains the end of it. Right. Because we've got these instances where Thanoth has seemingly been ahead of Vader in terms of, oh, you've been on Anthen Prime. Like, Wait, what? Oh, yes, this ionization or something on your armor, blah, blah, blah. That Thanoth kind of knows what's going on, but he's sort of playing it safe. Like he's investigating, but he already kind of suspects that Vader was involved in the whole thing. And he's not going to betray Vader given his position and that sort of thing. And here we've got an instance of knowing that, yes, he's seeing what's going on, so he can either turn in Vader or support him as a case may be as we get to the end. I know we had that conversation in the last episode about whether or not he knew and why he acts in a certain way in the final issue. And I think this is the moment that helps become a key um, to, to getting into that. As for the Afro character... Uh, I'm assuming that they're going with East Asian, not West Asian, because you go West Asian and and you're talking something more Middle Eastern than what we would typically think of. When someone says Asian, then then they usually think of Middle East as sort of a separate region because you've got sort of an Arab-Persian descent going on versus the rest of most of Asia, once you get out of about Central Asia on, on eastward. So... It's interesting that you bring up how there would be some type of connection historically, because I hadn't really thought about that when it came to Afra. but you think about what she says about her family there, the idea that a war spilled over and caused her family this hardship. A split family, her mother dead in a ditch, and that it wasn't even necessarily the destruction of the war that could get you, it's all the profiteering and stuff that comes afterwards. And it has me kind of stop and pause Because you think about the last, oh, hundred years in terms of warfare, particularly warfare that is of a grander scale or a larger scale than just a local war. Something along the lines of a Korean War or a Vietnam War and the way that they affected Korea and Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and such. And just this idea that in a lot of ways in, in the real world, that type of scenario was all too common in real world wars that have taken place in Asia. Uh, that have taken place either in Korea or in Vietnam and kind of spilled outward, catching a lot of the populace in between and the, the, the ramifications of that. So I don't know if that's an intentional thing. It's probably just meant to give her a tragic background, but it's interesting that the character that they insert here in part to try to have a character that at least when they're, when drawn consistently is one of the few Asian styled characters that we see from an ethnic standpoint in Star Wars carries a background that does have those echoes of real history. That said, I think that 
there is a difference. And I, I ran into this when it came to one of my recent vlogs, but I think it was the the Q&A thing. It wasn't a vlog, regular vlog. I think it was a Q&A for my Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Nathan P. Butler, by the way. Get access to those exclusive Q&As where you can get your questions answered uh, by being part of the higher tier, the nobility of the Butler universe. That's $10 a month or above pledged. Basically, what strikes me is, and we've talked about this idea of representation before, and I don't think it ever, there's a step in the, in the process of thinking about it that I never quite hit. Cause we talked about this when we talked about transgender characters, gender neutral characters with, uh, uh, Arakavanya or however you say the character's name or Marakavanya from the Aftermath books and whatnot. And, you know, Chuck Wendig comes in, and if it's a Chuck Wendig story, you can pretty much guarantee there's going to be at least one or two new gay characters introduced, or a character that may have already existed, like Akmina from the Holiday Special, who will be turned into a gay character if they've never had a sexual orientation uh, actually said at some point, and so on. And there's a lot of debate over whether identity politics or the idea of inclusion is a good thing or a bad thing in stories. And I tend to come down on the idea that as long as the character is true to the character, fits the story, then and it doesn't feel forced in that sense, then inclusion is important. But not in a, well, you must check off these boxes in a social justice sense. You must have this person and this person and this type of person and this type of person. But instead that... One of the things that draws people and keeps people attached to a saga is we sort of see ourselves in the characters. And for a long time, fans who were, let's say, for instance, an African-American fan for a long time, especially before the prequels, would either have to recognize himself or herself in a character in Star Wars by personality traits. Hey, I'm more like Luke. Hey, I'm more like Han. But not by ethnicity, because really the only option there was Lando. And they would have to decide, well, do I want to, you know, do I think of myself as sort of Lando? I would never have done that to my friend, so that's still really not me. And what we're finding is, I think, that you're seeing more diversity in Star Wars and more inclusion in Star Wars right now in a time period in which we are seeing more of that diversity highlighted in society. And what struck me when I was doing that Q&A is that I think what I'm noticing is that inclusion is tending to focus on and I think this is this is important in a good way. It's the way that we define ourselves now, right? So if right now we're tending to see people define themselves and the divisions within society, the different little groups and cliques in society, defining themselves on racial or ethnic reasons or, or uh, justification, whatever you want to call it, racial or ethnic lines and sexual orientation lines and such, then that's where you're going to see that more in Star Wars because Star Wars is going to be representing people in ways that we think of ourselves, in a sense. That's why probably I would say that if you go back, say, you know, 10 years, you're not seeing quite as much when it comes to uh, sexual orientation or gender identity type of diversity in Star Wars. Not because there weren't people in society who were dealing with those types of distinctions, so much as... It wasn't the way society's discussion on the idea of people identifying themselves really was at at that point. Uh, now that it's become more emphasized, it translates over into Star Wars. And you mentioned how you're not sure if it was someone who had a particular background that would relate to your own ethnic background that you would necessarily be able to pick somebody out in Star Wars that's like that. But I think that that is just part and parcel to the same thing of the way that we sort of divide each other. When society tends to divide itself and you're in sort of a big picture, not in the smaller groups, society would say, well, this person is 
Asian descent. They won't say Korean, Vietnamese, Chinese, Japanese, although those are distinct cultural differences. By the same token, they would say, okay, well, European or Caucasian over here, rather than saying, well, here's the Star Wars equivalent of Irish, British, Swedish, uh, someone who's a Dane from Denmark and so forth, that because we as a society usually don't get quite as down into the minutia of ethnicity and tend to just divide into sort of big groups. You're Middle Eastern. Okay, well, is that Middle Eastern Arab or Middle Eastern Persian? That's very different ethnic background. Well, it's Middle Eastern. Oh, and you kind of shake your head, you know? But but in that sense, I think that's translating over into Star Wars because they can't really go super specific because it's not like these are all people from Earth. But you try to represent as you can in these broad swaths of society and as the way that we as society tend to divide ourselves into little groups, Star Wars is tending to reflect that. So that's why we're seeing more diversity in terms of sexual orientation, for instance, now than we would have seen before. It's why we're seeing more ethnic diversity than before, but uh, not necessarily going even more granule um, down into, you know, Asian from this part of Asia, Asian from this other part of Asia. But I think that's also why... You know, like, I wouldn't be able to, like, my heritage is, uh, part Irish. I think it's part Irish and or Scottish and British, right? So for me, it's just, hey, look, there's a bunch of white guys in Star Wars because there's nothing more specific than that to a heritage that I claim. But I wouldn't expect there to be anything more specific to that because modern society doesn't tend to think that way. You know what I mean? Um, so it's, it's interesting to see Afra in there and to, and the comment you made there, I think it's exactly on point. But I think that's, it's sort of a working as intended thing. Like it's not necessarily a flaw that we wouldn't be able to say, hey, this person seems like they're more Irish or more Scottish or more uh, Swedish or more Norwegian or whatever. So much as, wow, the fact that we can't necessarily see that in Star Wars means that the Star Wars creators don't see that as a level of minutia that they would need to go into for character representation because society doesn't. And that's it's an interesting reflection back and forth. But the social studies teacher in me is coming out. Stop it. Stop it. Well, I, like I said, I, I, I got into a conversation on Twitter with Bria about it, and I, I think I came across as a jerk when I wasn't intending to. I was definitely wanting to ponder this. And they covered this on their Kanji cast uh, episode, number one episode, and Jay had said something about how, you know, you're not going to please everyone. And I, I definitely think that there's an aspect of that as well. Like, cause one of the things I always thought about is like, well, what if you took every ethnic group and you basically gave them a planet in the world? Which if you think about it, like that's kind of what the prequel trilogy did where, where when they started interjecting black characters, they were like, oh, well, they're an alien. They're not just a human. They're a near human and stuff like that, which is kind of insulting in its own sense. Like, why can't they be human? Like, there's no reason why they can't. And then there was the other angle of, well, well, we'll just make everybody aliens, you know, and then they're all aliens. All everybody has their own little alien group that, that represents that ethnic group and, and that culture and that. And it comes down to that. Well, then you run that danger of running the stereotype game. And as Jay had said, you're not going to please everyone. What may be okay for someone may be offensive to someone else. And there is a definite dance done, whether it be with ethnic groups or sexual identity, you know, and, it's interesting from our point of view because we watch other fans react to it and then we come in and we chime in with our opinion. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think that it's, it's an interesting predicament that we have by trying to include and make it where Star Wars is welcoming to everyone without making people feel excluded when you're dealing with so many various stereotypes that can sometimes be offensive. This is true. This is very, very true. All right. So that moves us into book two, part five, also known as issue 11 
of Darth Vader's Shadows and Secrets Part 5. We pick up where we left off, Afra and Triple Zero and BT-1 in trying to use those funds that Vader has provided because of the whole heist and everything to figure out the location of and the identity of or confirm the identity of and the location of the son of Skywalker that blew up the Death Star, they head back to the ante at Anthan Prime, right? The space station there at Anthan Prime. And it's going to cost her a pretty penny, but she is going to be able to actually confirm with the ante that Luke is on Vorgas Vas. And in the process of paying for that, the auntie is able to confirm, based on what she's paying with, that yes, she was part of that operation that took the Santol Pride's fortune uh, in that heist. Again, the Empire, for those who don't remember from the last episode, the Empire basically raided the Santol Pride, took the cash, but then Vader's team, led by Afra, stole it from that Imperial ship so that now Vader can use it independently. So there is still a question of that, and that is actually why Thanoth is investigating in the first place. And Vader has a strike team ready to go. Thanoth has figured out where the Ante's location is and believes that he is the key to uncovering all operations in the sector, so they're going to carry out a raid. And sure enough, the raid goes down, and in the process of this massive, massive firefight, Triple Zero and BT-1 are trying to get the heck out of there. Vader and Thanoth do wind up capturing the Ante, and the Ante very quickly, when Thanoth tells them what they're looking for, you know, that they're looking for the responsible parties from the Santo Pride's treasures being stolen, the Ante's like, you're in luck! And there she is, as Aphra is running through the blaster fire trying to escape. Now, the Ante has a lot more information that he might be providing. Vader realizes this might sort of blow the lid on his whole operation, so he very quickly, very subtly uses the Force to cause a Mon Calamari, who is blasting away in part of the battle, to actually shoot the Ante. Whoopsie! It's a, an unlucky stray shot, as Thanoth put it. And Vader allows Thanoth and the Stormtroopers to go ahead and continue going after Aphra on their end, whereas he circles around... She manages to get herself through a closing blast door, only to reach a door that opens right, right in front of her ship so she can escape. And Vader is on the other side. She says, uh, Hi, boss. This is tight, but I can get away. We have... He ignites his lightsaber and then grabs her with a force choke, lifting her off the ground. You know, do not struggle. But she says, I know where the boy is. And he lets her fall. Now tell me. I will. Later. She essentially buys her life by the fact that she knows the information that he needs, but she is not going to tell him until she is safely away. He allows her to leave. He says, silence, you will answer for this. And Vader, and this is something I didn't catch, I guess, on the first time reading it because I didn't quite get what was happening. But Vader, after she leaves, uses the force to cause a bunch of debris to fall down on his own head so that her ship can escape, he can then emerge from the debris, file, uh, debris pile and essentially claim that she had set a trap, which gives a valid reason for her being able to escape that doesn't put Vader in a bad light or toss suspicion on him. Unfortunately for Aphra, supposed Aphra is not the only one who has traps. Thanoth does as well, and as the Archangel escapes into the clouds and the storms and such around Anthan Prime, Turns out that Thanoth has an Imperial task force ready there to catch her. And the question is, uh, sooner or later, we'll have her in our hands. And then we'll see what she has to say. Hmm? 
And I'm pretty sure that's not the tone of voice in which Thanos said it, but it was amusing to me. So with with Afra nearly caught, uh, running into Imperial ships in that storm, uh-oh, we got one issue left as part five ends. Man, there, there was again, once again, a use of the K-10. I love the fact that that keeps showing up. Uh, this time it was modified, though, so whatever that looks like. There was a great moment. I don't know if you had touched on it with uh, Afra sliding underneath the door of the Indiana Jones moment. I, I think I love the fact that they play that up. I'm going to assume it's intentional because Afra definitely has the Indiana Jones vibe. She feels like the most Indiana Jones that we'll ever see in Star Wars. So I don't know. For me, like I, I thought this issue was a lot of fun. I like the way that Afra is kind of. I don't know. Like she's, she's being pretty ballsy. Like she's got a brass set. Like she's willing to go toe to toe with Vader and she already knows she's kind of over the line. Like she could die at any moment. She's, <laughs> she's reached that point in her work schedule with Vader. It's like, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four. Yes, you could die now. You know, it's like I'm, I've reached the death zone at any point I could screw up and he could reach out and just clench a fist and I could be dead. She's a realist in that regard. So I like the fact that she's willing to play hardball with him and the fact that he is willing to go along and willing to risk himself. I mean, you think about it. All it really took for Vader to die was getting zapped by some force lightning. So really, you know, having rocks and stuff fall on your armor like that doesn't seem like a safe bet. Like you, you're really putting yourself at risk. Still, granted, he could do the whole uh, what was it, the apocalypse thing, where where they crushed him under rock and 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 saved a little bubble of the force. Like maybe he did something like that. But still, anytime Vader's costume, his armor gets damaged, like that thought comes to my mind. It's like all it takes is one catastrophic failure of that system, and you're you're not breathing, dude. Like. So I don't know. For in that one aspect, it's like that's that's a risk. Like he took a very big risk there. <laughs> I feel like this is this issue doesn't really there's not a lot to comment on in this one as compared to some of the other ones, because it's all about sort of moving things towards that final confrontation. Just like we talked about how this arc in general, Shadows and Secrets, is really all about getting us to Vader down from where we left off back in the previous arc, which was just called Vader. So there's not as much to talk about, perhaps, as there would have been for those other ones. But two things stand out to me with this issue. One, something I didn't mention when summarizing, is that before the ante dies, as sort of a show that he does know a lot of things, before he's asked specifically about the Santul Pride's fortune, he does point out the location of the Plasma Devils. The Plasma Devils were pointed out as this raiding group of some kind that uh, Aeolin and Morit, the two twins, were sent after. And that was actually why they were in the the arms dealer's flunkies little area to question him back in a previous issue that we talked about last time. So they've kind of crossed paths with this investigation before, but now here's the ante saying, I know exactly where they are. So they now do have that information to work with, which will be helpful in the next issue. But then we've talked, and you've mentioned moments ago, about Afra and her inconsistency. And we talked about this a lot in the last issue, that basically, for whatever reason, even though this series is primarily drawn by Salvador LaRocca, it's like he can't figure out what Afra is supposed to look like. And granted, she does look different oftentimes between covers when we're seeing her on a cover and the rest of an interior of an issue, but that's kind of a normal thing to have covers that don't necessarily reflect the insides quite as much, even if it comes to characterization. That's fine. Yeah, different artists sometimes. Right, but as you look through this issue, Afra again, is played by Clayface. 
or perhaps a Claudite, because she is constantly looking different depending on where we're seeing her. When she first meets the anthem or the anti, she looks different than she does elsewhere. Uh, when she is being grabbed in the force choke, it seems as though the design of what her face looks like is completely different. Uh, in, than what we've seen before. But I would point you to the moment of her being choked where she says, I know where the boy is. Well, she looks like that one guy from Rogue One. <laughs> Power, whatever. Yeah, she, yeah, she looks like Power, whatever from Rogue One. But at least in that case, it's because her head is leaning back and she's supposed to be grimacing. So it sort of makes sense that she'd be making kind of a weird face. But check out. It is the third page, I think, whenever she's with the auntie. It's the page that begins with the auntie saying, I'd say this very circumstantial evidence would prefer my or confirm my prejudices. The very next thing, she has her hands kind of off to the side. And she's saying, can we stop with what I can only presume is crime lord flirting? Her face! <laughs> Again, it looks like she's the child of Apocalypse <laughs> from the X-Men comics. What is he doing? It's the same artist. This is not one artist from issue to issue not being able to present the character looking the same for panel to panel. This is the same guy. Do you not know what this character is supposed to look like? Are you just making this up as you go along? Can you not use... I know you don't want a character to necessarily look like a real world person because if you do that, then there's likeness rights and stuff that goes into it. But all kinds of artists use photo references even for parts of facial structure so that it looks consistent. For God's sake, make her look consistent at least. I mean, it's it, it, it boggles my mind, but I saw that panel when I was reading. I, I happened to be reading this or rereading this while I was sitting there. Uh, I was sitting there reading this. My wife was sitting over, I think she was playing a game on her phone or something. We were both kind of half paying attention and trying to watch something from the CW on the CW app. So we're paying attention to that. And all of a sudden, I just bust out laughing. <laughs> it's like, what the heck is it? I'm like, like, it's Apocalypse. Like, what's so funny about Apocalypse? I'm like, it's Star Wars. Like, what? Never mind. But yeah, it's just, they, they just cannot figure out how they want. And the ante, the ante looks more consistent. Thanoth looks more consistent than Afra. And Afra is a major character, through line character of this book. Why? What is so freaking hard? Well, that makes you question the, the likeness a aspect. I mean, so... We've had characters named after fans. We've had characters that looked like some fans. I mean, what if they did it in that realm? What if they had a contest where, you know, we're looking for a specific, we want, uh, you know, an East Asian, you know, female of this height, you know, around this size and, you know, do an open casting call, right? And we, we but we want it to be fans. We want it to be a genuine fan of Star Wars kind of thing. I mean, if you, you're not a fan that, oh, well, but this is what's coming, right? You, you get selected. We're going to take your likeness. And now that character is going to look like you. But, but what if just by doing that, that is the payment? You know, I mean, you were talking about likeness rights, but what about if that's all the fan wants is just to be represented as a character? Like, like how you paid for, uh, your, was it dusk, uh, with Jan Dreesma and John Ostrander when you're going to have your likeness in there where you paid money to have that happen? What if it was something like that by winning the contest? That was your prize. Like, could they do something like that? Or there's just too many legalities that, that just, don't play to my simple mind. <laughs> I think depending on how the contract is devised for once someone wins that contest, 
I think that would work well. That said, for this character, I don't think it would ever work in real life, because as soon as they say, we're looking for someone of East Asian descent to be used for a model for Afra, you'll have one side saying, that's racist! Afra should be able to be anybody! Despite the fact they've already got sort of a general look for Afra going on, and then the other side will be saying, ah, here we go! Social justice warriors at it again! They just want another East Asian person! And, and yeah, you wind up with the same bullcrap you see, you know, when they cast... Finn, or they cast Cassie and Andor, or they cast uh, Rose Tycho, uh, and just, uh Yeah, the, the nasty side of human nature comes forward, and you're just like, I want to pull my hair out. Yeah, yeah, so in modern political context, I can't imagine them actually doing that, unless they did it for a whole bunch of different characters, but even them, they would probably still have to have, if you were looking for trying to be the likeness for a specific character, you would still have them have to put some type of description next to it. But then again, I don't know. I mean, in this political climate, maybe the it'll be the exact opposite, which would be that they would have no requirements. I mean, we're looking for someone who can be a facial model for Luke Skywalker, so you're, you are more than welcome to submit your information if you look nothing like Luke Skywalker. If you are an incredibly overweight, uh, bald guy of a different ethnicity who frankly we can't quite tell what your gender is at times <laughs> if you are if you are pat from saturday night live feel free to submit your your information in case you want to play the role of luke skywalker as the likeness rights because they'd be so concerned from a legal standpoint and from a, a social media standpoint of not offending anyone you know there's there's a line between it, it's 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 that thing it's you know Everything in moderation mm-hmm. and such that in modern society, there is there is good to come from not offending people. There's also good to come from, you know, logic and just being intelligent and, and trying to make choices and so forth and looking at situations and being realistic about them. And it seems as though you can only go hard one way or hard the other right? in politics or social media now when in reality, like almost every uh, everything else, it's somewhere in between that the happy medium is found where you actually do things that are rational and non-offensive and people are able to sleep at night without stewing in their bed and making a face like Afra was when she looked like apocalypse um, over issues like this. And I think about, you know, we just had Halloween and the whole Moana thing, you know, the, the cultural identity there of, you know, white kids don't play Moana because it's racist, right? So Uh-oh. what if you were to do Afra, who is supposed to be East Asian, who when you look at the comic, you really can't pick that out from what you're seeing there. But what if, like, say my daughter dressed up like Afra, would that be considered racist? I mean, I, I, I'm genuinely asking out of curiosity here because I don't know. I would have thought it would have been okay for my daughter to dress up like Moana because she loves the character and loves the movie right now. Last year she was Elsa and Anna because she loved that movie. Like, like there's that aspect where like I don't try to be ignorant. You know, I don't try to be a jerk. I don't try to be an a hole. I am trying to understand. And like I said, as as somebody who is predominantly white and yet has Native American in me enough that I qualify to be a member of the Delaware tribe, is perplexing for me because I'm the opposite side of multiracial. I don't look it at all. <laughs> I'm the shut up, you white male. Shut up. <laughs> you know what's funny is you said you 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 mentioned the whole thing with Moana. And I realized I may have just set up one of our friends by accident because there was a point in the afra comic where in one particular panel afra looks like a dead ringer for michael morris's wife and i sent it because they do cosplay and i sent it to him was like she could totally do afra in this look because it looks like your wife i'm like "Uh uh-oh so maybe i just set up the morrises maybe i should mention that to him so that they 
can avoid that, perhaps. Um, or maybe it shouldn't matter. Well, and that's just it. Like, because, be- well, yeah, because of the way this medium specifically comes across, right? The only thing that, to me, at this moment, that makes this character really feel East Asian is the fact that the creator said that's their intent. There is nothing that I have seen or read that makes me come away with that feeling, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I would think that if I was East Asian, I would want to see something more. Uh, but again, there's that danger of you don't want to fall into the stereotypes of how to get there. So, you know, it's just it's definitely something that I perplex a lot. I ponder it a lot and I think about it a lot. Uh, you know, from, from both sides of the thing. I mean, you know, I, with my family history, I've got one side of the family that almost wiped out the other side of the family. And it's very odd at times to, you know, especially Thanksgiving time, man. I'm perplexed. Like, and we're right in that, that era right now. Like Thanksgiving is this week. And I'm already thinking about the fact that my ancestors butchered some of my other ancestors. Like, that's some messed up crap. Hope you enjoy your turkey, you son of a bitch. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> Anybody for pie? But. You know, real world stuff, fandom stuff, big picture stuff aside, we do still have one more issue to go to wrap up the threads of this story. But while we are thinking outside of the comic and a little bit broader on Star Wars, uh, how's about a word about our sponsor, Mark? That's right. Star Wars Beyond the Films is brought to you by the fine folks at Tops. Take a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi or check out Top's new Masterwork collection by visiting Tops.com to pick up an incredible selection of Star Wars trading cards today. That's right, Top's Masterwork set is back. The high-end collector card set you know and love is returned with new characters and new hits. The set features 100 premium base cards, new short prints to chase wood, foil, and metal insert cards, as well as new autograph signers and new relic cards. There is one hit card per mini box, four mini boxes per master box, and two autographs per master box, also guaranteed. And voyage across the Star Wars galaxy with Tops in an all-new trading card collection, Tops, Journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi. The 110 base storyline cards take you on a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi. Collect stickers, character cards, illustrated cards, as well as sketch cards, hand-drawn renderings of Star Wars characters from across the saga, and plastic emblem cards featuring heroes and villains from Star Wars The Last Jedi and more. Autographs from over 50 actors and characters with special focus on The Last Jedi, and look for rare dual and triple autographs plus the ultra-rare six-person autograph featuring actors from Star Wars The Force Awakens. Cards feature the iconic 1977 blue Starfield design, so be sure to pick up your trading cards and take the journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi by visiting Tops.com today. And if you're into the digital side of collecting, be sure to check out Tops' Star Wars Card Trader app. Collect and trade over 1,000 officially licensed Star Wars digital cards. This also includes replicas of the original Star Wars 1977 set by Tops. There are daily deals, all new trading cards, exciting digital twists, and so much more. Take your entire Star Wars collection with you anywhere you go, or trade with your friends to build your Star Wars collection as you see fit. You can find Tops Star Wars Card Trader app on the App Store or Google Play now. All right, so that brings us into the last issue of Shadows and Secrets. And we start out with a page that, again, shows a little bit of inconsistent artwork. I'm not exactly sure what happened to the Stormtrooper on the first story page, except perhaps he got, uh, he, he wasn't, 
Well, maybe he was a little too short for a stormtrooper and decided to just grab him by the helmet and stretch and see what happens. But yeah, too tall. They just had to give him like a really long helmet. This stormtrooper walks into a bar and the bartender says, why the long face? Anyway. Okay. So, uh, we pick up with the chase of Afra, the Imperial ships. Now Thanoth and Vader are aboard the Arquitans class ship that is leading the pursuit up there. And he's sort of narrating what's happened. Thanoth is, you know, we'll either drive her out or disable the ship, then drag her clear. There'll be losses, I'm sure, but I'm confident we'll be able to bring her to Imperial justice. And perhaps even her patron, he says, as he turns and looks at Vader. And then he continues on, there has to be one. A mission like this would have required an internal leak. And he's sort of leading Vader into responding. Vader's like, this is a waste. How so, Lord Vader? We have a ready strike force. We have the location of the Plasma Devils, and we are here chasing a simple thief. And Thanoth, who is this brilliant guy, does a, a, a head smack. He does a face palmy head smack. Oh, curse me for a fool. My great weakness. The chase consumes me. Lord Vader, may I make a daring suggestion? Do so. With the fall of such a major figure as the Anti, the entire system will be in an uproar. All will suspect their safety is compromised. We know where the Plasma Devils are now. We have no idea where they will be this evening. This woman is a professional. She has acted against the Empire, but there is no public loss of face. No one knows but us. To, that emphasis, no one knows but us. To choose between the Plasma Devils and a simple thief is no choice at all. This will mean abandoning our mission, but surely it is the only course. And Vader says, we are in accord, Inspector. Tag will be displeased. He will be if we fail. So it's interesting, it says, but I do not think either of us is in the business of failure. It's interesting because you can, t like, when you look at this now, knowing ahead of time that Thanoth knows, knowing that he suspects or that he has sort of figured out Vader's role in this, this doesn't seem like a weird conversation and him just being a moron, being like, oh, I should go after the bigger target. It's a, Vader, I'm giving you a chance here to pull this out of the fire because I got to do my job, but at the same time, there are ways you can sort of guide me in doing my job that won't wind up having blowback on you. You know, he's, it's one of those things where, you know, you've got the person, uh, you get the person dead to rights, but you want to help them save face. So you try to find a way so that you don't lose face in the process of helping them save face. And surely, surely enough, the Imperials turn around and start going the opposite direction to which, uh, Afra says, I'm going to live. And Triple Zero pops up and says, for now, Mr. Zafra, which is a fantastic <laughs> line from him and really kind of creepy if you've read the newest issue of Afra, but we'll, we'll get to that someday. No, I, I got it just real quick. It's, it's the lines from the droids that are great. Cause I, I was going to mention that too. In, in an earlier issue, when he's torturing, uh, the Nabooan guy, he goes, you're not going to get anything from me. And Triple Zero's like, oh, you're just adorable. I love it when you play the part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the droids are, I mean, the droids kind of deserve their own series, quite frankly. But they make a great foil or a great couple of characters to, especially Triple Zero, to bounce things off of Aphra. So her, her series wouldn't quite be the same without them. But you mentioned, you mentioned this, this part, this dialogue and like, okay, so maybe your point of view is making me open up to, I hated it. I did not like the sudden change and him bonking his head like, like for me, like it, that threw me off, and, and I kept questioning, like Vader, you're smarter than this. Like he, you gotta realize that this guy's onto you. Like you think he knows nothing, and everything this guy is doing is proving he is a smart mf. Like this guy, he is Thrawn esque in his uncanniness. Granted, 
that droid that you pointed out, that's clearly where he's getting a lot of this. But I, I thought that that sudden reversal was too out of character. And I didn't pick up on the subtleness of the fact that he was doing it on purpose. Like for me, that really irritated me at that moment. I'm like, come on, this guy's too smart for this. Well, it's like I said in our last episode, in reading this originally, this story left me cold every time. So I barely remembered what happened in the previous issue when the time came for the next issue. So for me, I was kind of like, wait, what the heck is happening? Because I didn't realize or remember all those little subtle hints about Thanoth knowing what was going on. I was just kind of going along with each issue as it stood because I could barely remember the others. So, speaking of going back to previous issues, you may recall uh, that Vader has been talking about the, the Vader of the series. Has been talking about the Plasma Devils for a while. We didn't quite know who they are. So we finally move to Vader and Thanos' strike force going after them. Turns out they are a rebel cell, and Vader wipes them out on Anthan 1, uh, including a nice moment of throwing a lightsaber that then basically cuts one of the... We call it nacelles, I guess, if I'm using Trek terminology. One of the, the Y-Wing top Y pieces off of a Y-wing that is trying to escape. Now, this, of course, brings our characters on the Imperial side back together. Tag, Void Gazer, Carbon, the twins, Vader, and Thanoth, because this wasn't actually Vader's mission. This was a twins' mission to go after the Plasma Devils, and Thanoth is right there defending Vader's decision to go after them instead of going after Aphra, right? Uh, this wasn't your mission. No, it was yours, Morit. You and your sister may thank us later. Now you have the afternoon free for decapitating some more useful leads, because, of course, that's what was happening back in the previous couple of issues where they did cross paths before, as we saw. And it's interesting the way that you can see Thanoth covering for Vader and his loyalty more to Vader, it seems like, than to the Empire in general, that he's doing his job to protect his master, so to speak. Because Tag says, this is a great success, but you let the thief escape. It's unlikely we'll ever find them again. And Thanoth steps up. Strictly speaking, I gave the suggestion, so if there is blame to be assigned, I... And then Vader steps in. The decision was mine. Chasing after a few missing coins or crushing the rebels? That is not a choice. Again, we continue on here. Carbon trying to sort of smash the ego of the twins to try to up his own status there, talking a little bit of smack, right? And Vader, of course, pointing out, You got the boy yet? You got the one who went after the Death Star yet? No? Great. So shut the F up, basically. So it's a good way to sort of bring down the status of basically everybody but Vader in this little power struggle that's going on. And as Vader and Thanoth are leaving, they continue with their conversation. He says, uh, you know, it's been an honor, Lord Vader. Having a minor misdemeanor turn into a grand triumph is far more than I would have hoped. It's a shame the thief escaped, of course. He says, do not worry, Thanoth. She will not escape justice. Uh-oh, double meaning from Vader! We move to Afra, Triple Zero, and BT-1, basically waiting for Vader. And Triple Zero puts it in pretty stark terms. If I'm not very much mistaken, manipulating Master Vader by withholding information is the sort of behavior one would classify as blackmailing him. He was quite clear on what would result. Though it does make a droid wonder how exactly he'll terminate you. Yes, BT, he could certainly do that. Or that. <laughs> nice banter then with the droids. But Vader shows up. And she just flat out tells him. She doesn't hold it back the information or anything. She says, Vorgus Voss. The boy's on Vorgus Voss. And Vader's actually kind of shocked to see that she's there at all. But she reasons that if she sent a message and ran, he'd just hunt her down and kill her. So her only chance of surviving was to prove herself to be trustworthy. That she wants to work for him, can show has shown what she can do, and that she's useful alive, not dead. And sure enough, 
Vader says yes. He says the past few days have given him an appreciation of talent, presumably talking about Thanoth, so he's willing to let her live as long as she doesn't make him regret it in the grand scheme of things. And, uh, you know, she, she wants their relationship to progress. She wants their partnership to progress, of course. Uh, you know, one of these days, I hope we're going to get past this, is he going to murder me this time stage of our relationship. They start talking about what's going on on Vorgus Voss. And according to Vader, and this is interesting here, according to Vader, there is no known Jedi temple on Vorgus Voss, but that's exactly what Luke has gone to investigate. So there are some questions as to the nature of the, tr the temple that he's trying to visit on Vorgus Voss. Is there actually a temple there? If so, why would Vader not have known about it? And so on. And yes, they're ready to actually undertake a mission to go find Luke on Vorgus Voss, which is the entire setup of Vader down. But there's an extra wrinkle in the story, and that as Vader takes off in his TIE Advanced X-1 to go to Vorgus Voss, they're being spied upon. Again. And I guess you could argue, I guess, that the probe droid before may have actually not been Thanos. It could have been Carbons. And it could have just been that Thanos was just giving things away through his interactions with Vader. I was thinking Thanos. It's possible it could have been Carbon. Um, because we do see through a droid's eyes here, uh, or at least some kind of scanning device's eyes, and Carbon, sitting in his command console, says, Vader takes the bait. You want to find the boy and get your revenge? Carbon can help you in your shameless attempt to assert my mission as he speaks in a mixture of third person and first person. Oh, dear rival, you will find the troublesome boy on Vorgus Voss, but he won't be alone. Bum, bum, bum. So Carbon is manipulating events to also help set up the events of... Vader down, which will not only bring us a confrontation between Luke and Vader, but also between Vader and Carbon, continuing the storylines of both Star Wars and Darth Vader. But with that, Shadows and Secrets ends. And it also, like you point out, like this is where I get confused about that droid, because this does, it, it makes me feel like it's Carbon's droid, that Carbon's been keeping track on Vader and not the, uh, Thanon. So, like that, that's definitely, a, a, a part of the story that I have trouble with, but you, you had mentioned the fact of the banter between the droids talking about how Vader could kill her and stuff. And the one thing that you didn't touch on, I want to talk about is Afra. You know, I mean, she is, she's, she knows she's dead. Basically. You could see it on her face. Like, like when he go, uh, when triple zeros, he's quite clear on what would result. Like she knows she's about to die. And then, you know, they're doing the thing. Oh, that babe or that. And she goes, guys, not helping, not helping. And ah! like, way she jumps off the rock when she sees vader that's everything about when you're terrified about something and then bam it just shows up on your doorstep or like like my wife like my wife absolutely hates it right but if i put pennywise costume on or, or come near or scream i have the scream costume on. i put that mask on at all walk through the house at all she will scream like that and so like i love the fact that while she loves vader She's realist enough to recognize the position she's in and the amount of peril she's at. And I, I appreciate that. And the way that that's written, like, I, I can get down on that. Like, I really enjoy that. Uh, and we had mentioned earlier the, the 
part where Vader brought the rocks down. And I forgot that I had this in my notes, but it does show the lengths that he's willing to go to achieve his goal. And it reminds me of the Tales comic where he stabs himself to kill Maul. You know, what could you possibly hate enough to defeat me? And he stabs himself myself. Like, so I, I do like that aspect too, that Vader is willing to go to extreme lengths to get what he wants. But again, it gets back to that angle of, I'm still not 100% sure what Vader's end plan is here. You know, is he being legitimate? Is this all building up to that? Join me and together we will rule the galaxy as father and son. Like I, I kind of at times detect some sincerity there that this is pushing the sincerity that direction. Like he does want to get to know his son. He does want to have a relationship with the last part of Padme that that last part of himself that was still there. And maybe he's looking at this as this is a way to kind of redeem himself from the life he's been forced to take since he's killed his wife. Like these are things that I I think about in, in the spare time between my pages. Yeah. I think that Afra has become one of these characters that, at least at this point, we were sort of kind of wondering whether or not she was completely immoral. Is she amoral? Is this a character who we should be willing to like? Is there a good side to the character? And the more that we see with her sense of humor, the more that we see with sort of her sense of pragmatism to some degree, it's going to get us into a point where, even though she's one of the bad guys, so to speak, from the grand scheme of things, she's not as bad. And it's going to leave us open, I think, to eventually get some more out of the character. For instance, we're going to eventually find out about someone she had a previous relationship with who was a character already introduced in the ongoing Star Wars series. We're going to eventually find out more about her family and meet her father in the pages of the Afra comic when she does get her own spinoff and such. So getting scenes like that seem very real from a human standpoint that someone with her psychology would act the way that she did and... That was the practical thing to do. Uh, But it makes her a brave character, or a completely crazy character, or a little bit of both, when she's willing oftentimes to put herself at Vader's mercy to prove herself. Originally it was, you know, I want to work with you, I'm putting you at at me, I'm putting myself at your mercy. Whereas in this case it's sort of a, I've proven myself, now it's a chance to see if he recognizes that too. And again, it's all good character progression for her as an individual. With Thanoth, we don't have quite the clear understanding that he does understand everything, but we certainly have the hints of it here. And as we go along in the series, we're going to continue to get more hints of that until finally we will get some some actual discussion between Thanoth and Vader about what he actually knows and when he knows it and that sort of thing. But again, this is all set up for stuff that is a while down the way, and we still have 13 issues left of this series. We still have uh, the wrapping up. We have the uh, show tour and war still to go. We have end of games still to go, and of course, before we get to either of those, we still have Vader down. So we have quite a bit still to go in this series, and in, in essence, this is our, you know, one of our early building blocks, even though it is building so much upon uh, things that we expect. Things like, oh, he's going after Luke. Yes, he is. But understand that at this point, he's only done that for one arc prior to this. You know, it's one of those things where it feels maybe like it's further along in the series because there are familiar characters and situations But not really. We are still in those early stages. We're just now rounding out basically the first half of the Darth Vader series at this point. So we have a long, long way to go. And hopefully by the time we're done, they'll figure out what Aphra's supposed to look like. So speaking of what Aphra's supposed to look like, any last comments before we dive into covers? Because that actually gives us some hint on that score. Well, actually, there is. Uh, I had some comments about the art. You know, we were talking about the goods and the bads. And one of the ones that seems like a rushed paint job to me 
Photoshop or whatever you want to call it, paint. Uh, it's when Vader throws the lightsaber at the Y-Wing, right? So he cuts that back nacelle off like you were talking about and he retrieves his lightsaber. It's the way they go about using the TK ability in this. It looks like somebody just went into paint and just used the broadest brush and just slapped some lines down. It looks really cheesy. I like usually they'll do just like drawn lines, which I guess I'm used to that because in a sense, this is no difference than that, but it definitely looks like they went into the paint program and used the block brush. <laughs> I'm like, come on guys, that looks really cheap. It's true. They use it. They give him sort of like this weird, like white lines around his fingers and white lines around whatever he's using the telekinesis on. And you can either interpret that as like this field of energy around it or just very, very quick movement. And my brain processes it as quick movement. So I think, you know, there's the shot, there's a page that has the nacelle actually falling off the Y-Wing. And then it has Vader calling the lightsaber back to himself. And it's got that, the little white squiggly lines for his hand and the lightsaber in both of the bottom two panels. I can't help but think of like a Looney Tunes-esque kind of sound effect of him as he's reaching out. He's twiddling his fingers and it's going... As it flies to him. I'm like, it's Bugs Bunny the Sith Lord. (laughs) No, that's good. And the other thing I was thinking about is, okay, so the Plasma Devils have been a rebel cell that's been a threat. Vader and them, you know, they've finally taken care of him. He throws the helmets down. And then I think about, you know, the other stories and the other arcs. Uh, You know, we had uh, Battlefront 2 where they go after the Dreamers, which is set earlier than this. The Rebel Cells are becoming issues and they're getting taken out. What are we watching on Rebels? We're watching Thrawn take out Phoenix Squadron. Phoenix Cell has basically been wiped out. And at this point, they've joined with Leia's Cell. And I'm stopping and thinking about that. Like, do we have an official name for Leia's Cell? Have Has that name ever came forward yet? Because that cell is definitely the most prominent cell and i'm surprised that that isn't being the you know top of all the wanted ads and stuff we want this cell taken out this cell is a priority we don't hear about this cell we hear about the dreamers we hear about the the plasma devils so I, it makes me stop and think about that like at what point are we going to get a name for leia's cell and when is that going to be the top priority because this definitely feels like that's the era that this should be you know the target on luke's back especially luke skywalker the pilot from that cell that is such a thorn in our ass that we're not going to name it like really you're taking out every cell you named name leia's cell take them out call them organa's cell or bale's cell or mon's cell i don't care cell phone something Okay. (sighs) I'm fine. I'm fine. You said thorn in your ass, and I had flashbacks to that time that I ate way too many seeded uh, sunflower seeds that we talked about. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, God, no, no. (sighs) For those of you who don't remember that episode, I don't remember what episode it was in, but you will hear the entire excruciating tale on Star Wars Beyond the Films because we strive to bring you quality content. We go there. Um, Wow, yes. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to see how they're dealing with it. It's almost like as soon as the Battle of Yavin happened, the Empire's thinking of it as different cells disappears, and to them, it's basically all one Rebel Alliance. And the only time they refer to groups by specific names is if they're specifically targeting that group, but otherwise, there's no differentiation. Like, I feel like kind of in this case, the Plasma Devils are probably a target of opportunity because they happen to be in that same system. That's why they start referring to them by name. But you wouldn't necessarily hear them refer to the activities of what was going on on some other planet as the activities of a particular cell so much as just the activities of that particular group. 
Well, like Leia's group, they're they're referred to as the Maasai group. And I'm like, is that smart naming your group after an indigenous planet that you're on's people that are no longer there? Like, let's type in Maasai in our Hollow Knight book. Hey, look at this. Yavin 4 comes right up. Let's go check that out. Time to go blow up some rebels. It's like it's like one of those uh those memes where it has something and then it just has the end credits image on the bottom of it, like the movie is just ended. Like like if it was a like, where is the rebel base? Yavin 4. They're on Yavin 4. Directed by George Lucas. You know, it's over. No, totally. Now are we good to look at the covers of this of these issues, or do we have anything else? I think I think we are there. I, I think aside from the final thoughts, we're at cover time. <laughs> All right, cool. So six issues, issues seven through 12 of the regular Darth Vader series. And you'll have to let me know when we get there uh, what exactly the trade paperback cover looks like because I actually haven't looked at it. So we have number seven, which is essentially the old Lars Moisture Farm, uh, the home entrance, and Vader's shadow, but not Vader himself, looming over it. Then issue number eight gives us Vader standing off to one side, uh, blocking blaster bolts, while Afra is beside him with her blaster drawn, and behind both of them are BT-1 and Triple Zero amidst some smoke. Then number nine has Vader with his back turned to the camera, so to speak, and his reflection shown in the uh, viewport as he's looking out at some Star Destroyers and TIE Fighters, uh, which are in the ships ahead of him, so he's seeing the rear of each of them. Issue number 10 shows us Afro with her headgear off, one part uh, over on one arm, the other part she's sort of holding by her shoulder. And as we see her from a little bit higher up than uh, eye level, we see the stones of the ground beneath her, some of which are colored darker than others to give us the outline of a Vader-esque helmet. Then issue number 11 is simply Vader with his lightsaber drawn amidst some flame as he's basically cutting a circle with the lightsaber on the ground beneath him. And then we have number 12, which is basically a battle sequence of Vader charging in with his lightsaber drawn and held up as stormtroopers also follow him during what appears to be an Imperial raid of some type. Probably meant to capture the essence of the raid against the Anti or perhaps against the Plasma Devils, though with the Plasma Devils, it was just him, supposedly, so probably the ante there. Fairly good covers all around. We'll talk about favorites once you get a chance to give your impressions. What do you think of these? Well, 8 was actually the cover of the trade paperback itself, which, to me, was the poor choice. I get why they did it. They wanted to definitely focus on Afra, and this one definitely puts her in the focus. But for me, okay, so 7, I really, I dig the vibe of 7. The way it's painted has a misty kind of ethereal quality so i like that the fact that we got vader's shadow kind of reminds me of the old anakin with the vader's shadow posters that we got when episode one came out the fact that we're returning to lars moisture farm i i love it i I really i dig that i like it's got a nostalgic feel to it so i'm down with that one number seven is good eight again it's the one that he used for the cover there's something about this one that i just don't really care for and i think it might be afra herself like i it's proportionally i feel like her arms feel like she's been lifting a lot of weight in the last three weeks since we saw her last <laughs> so i think that that's my issue with it but otherwise i mean you know it's just one of those action poses she's blasting vader's uh dodging the bolts back from wherever they're coming at her so she's dodging a bullet without being hit i guess because vader's there to protect her uh nine for me 
I think nine would have been the cover I'd have probably gone with. I think nine's the one I like the most. I really like the way the blues work, the different star destroyers in the background. It alludes to the scene where Vader found out in the, in the arc before this one, Skywalker's name and he reaches out and crushes the glass. Like I get that feeling like this is that moment before that, which is kind of touching because even though that happened in the last arc, that is definitely the, the premise of this arc of where he's going forward with. So I, to me, I think that one would have been the better cover to go with. Uh, number 10, you had mentioned the Vader thing. I like what I like about this one is the way the Vader's in the background. It definitely gives me that archeologist vibe. Uh, I like again, that it definitely puts more focus on Afra. You get that sense that, you know, she is definitely a big key element to the story. And I love that about this character. I mean, she definitely feels like the EU character of the new canon. You know, she's the character that was created for the comic. And, and has only been used in the comics and I think like referenced in the books like maybe once or twice but I'm loving that I, I want to see this character used more often I like the fact that they're using her in crossovers the way they've done uh, so this cover like it's definitely a showcase to Afra herself love that and 11 like that's the one if I wasn't going to go with 9 for the cover I would probably have gone with 11 these two are definitely my favorite too with Vader doing the half circle with it burning and stuff there's something really cool about it I like it it's a dramatic pose that I like for Vader I don't know it, it I get a vibe of Anakin from it. Uh, number 12, when we get to that aspect of Vader doing this little war action and stuff, not, not quite keen on this one too. And I don't know if it's just maybe because there's the lack of the words like Vader is here to save the day. Like there's nothing to it. So I don't know. It's just like an action scene that they just pulled out of anywhere. And since this scene doesn't really kind of feel like it happens in the comic it just kind of seems a little off for me so i, I think i definitely go with nine as my favorite uh and i i kind of think that they dropped the ball with the trade like that the cover they went with i understand why they did because clearly afra is starting to become as big a lead as vader himself who this is his title as we later find out when afra gets her own title so I like the progression of what they're doing with the characters i kind of hope they do more of that with the marvel comics from here on out so similar thoughts to yours, I do like number seven because it's got that echo back to the episode one preview poster, as you were saying. Not as big on eight. Similar reasons to you, just there's something off about it, I'm not quite sure what. I think for me what's off isn't so much Afra as it's Vader, just kind of standing to the side with his lightsaber held in what amounts to sort of a ready position, but it just so happens to have a blaster bolt bouncing off of it in the ready position. I think if he would have been in a different pose, it would have worked better. I do like number nine. I think it's a very well-composed image. It's one of my favorites here. It's hard for me to decide between that being the favorite and ten, because ten finally gives us a look at Afra that gives us Afra the way she's kind of meant to look for the most part, which always to me worked as sort of a mental comparison point whenever I was reading to try to go back and say, okay, well, Afra's supposed to look like that's the image that tends to pop into my head at least for a while while reading this series prior to her getting her own series. We'll come back to 11. Uh, 12, again, not bad. 12 looks more like interior art than it does cover art to me. That It just seems weird that that's being used as a cover instead of inside. But number 11, this is like Vader's Wily e. Coyote moment to me. Because he's cutting a circle around himself. So as soon as that circle comes together, if he's actually standing on something other than the ground floor of wherever he is, isn't he basically about to go, oh! Splat, basically. 
Well, I, I got you. I got you on this. So Anakin, he is a mechanical savant, right? Right, an idiot savant when it comes to mechanicals. So blueprints and things are Vader's. That's his jam, man. So of course he's already checked out what's going on on the layer below this. He's actually right underneath a pillar. He's in fact the only pillar supporting this floor. So once he cuts it, everyone else is gone. So and so the whole floor <laughs> around him will fall, but he will stand there again. Bugs Bunny esque. There you go. I mean, I like the fact that, you know, you've got the flame and such and the idea that he's got, you know, the cloak flapping behind him and everything. But as soon as you look down at the circle, like if he had just been standing there with like a slash on the ground that had fire. Sure. Fine. But a circle around himself that's almost closed. I'm wondering what happens in the next panel. Fanon, on this side of the line, I'm protected from the Emperor's wrath. <laughs> Here you go. It's, it's that childish, no, don't cross the line. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. Or I, my brain, the other thing that my brain went to was uh, Dresden Files and the idea he's about to create a magic circle and release energy into it to summon something or something. <laughs> Assault circle. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, that's great. So what was your overall impression in general for this one, man? Well, I mean, I like what it does for Afra as a character. I like the direction it moves things in. And Thanoth, once you read it and sort of understand what he is recognizing throughout and that he's not dense, that he actually is seeing what's going on, he's just not revealing how much he knows to Vader about what Vader is doing, I think it has some strong moments to push those characters forward. As for the story itself, it's a necessary link in the chain... But I'm not sure that I'm left all that much warmer toward it on a reread than I was originally. I got more out of it on the reread because I was able to read it all at once. I definitely think this is an arc you absolutely must read all in one sitting or you're going to wind up forgetting parts. And it's going to stop making as much sense as it should by the time you get to the end. So individual issues, definitely not the way to go for this one unless you're reading them all back to back. That said, there's more to what we're going to get in the story, and this is when I started to have that bad feeling about this, when you start to sort of get the sense, wait a second, is the through line of this series going to be all those little pretenders to the throne and how he deals with them? Because they're not all that interesting or fleshed out, and I really kind of want to see them gone. That kind of thing starts creeping into your mind, and sure enough, that is going to be what the through line is of the series. So... For better or worse, it propels things forward to where they were going to go with it, even if, to some degree, I'm sitting there thinking, I kind of wish you would have chosen a different direction in the long run. So, necessary to read if you're reading the series. Something to read as a standalone? No, not even remotely. Yeah, Marvel, it seems to be the home of non-film events being added to canon. You know, it's like they release stories in arc formats, they always raise the bar in terms of storytelling. But then I question, like, do we need crossover arcs i mean in my opinion no i mean because the main series it's mainly already crossing over simply due to the fact that they're set in the same time frame so this isn't like say you know vector where we're crossing over or anything like this so for me this arc it was hit or miss at times it got intense it's it's like going on a date with a pretty girl and having to fart right only the intensity could bleed out as an spd leaving you praying that it wouldn't stink i mean it's like the idea of Thanos, right? But he's he's so quick to recant too. He's like, ah, it's just what the writers need. Like that, his recanting, like if that probe droid was him, it would make more sense. But again, there's that question of was it was it Carbons? And so I'm like, his doing that just didn't make sense. It just definitely felt like, well, we just need this to happen, so we're gonna do it. So I'm just not sure if that was intentional or not. 
at this moment still, even on the second read through, I'm, I'm still a little confused. Perhaps he was just too close to Thrawn and they knew that Thrawn was coming. So they wanted to ratchet that back because like, as soon as that moment happened, that character's menace kind of bled away. Like he had Vader against the ropes. So that was definitely one of those things that made me kind of scratch my head. I did like the fact though, that this is mainly turning into Afra's story in a sense. Uh, I do want to know more about her. I want to know more about why Vader's going rogue and breaking bad against Sidious now. I mean, hasn't he already kind of been threatened in a sense to not attempt something like this from Sidious once before. So the fact that he's kind of going forward with that after already being told not to, is like, man, Vader, you got some brass balls in that suit, buddy. Like, so I want to know more. I definitely want to know more. They may actually be brass balls at this point, though. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you really think about it. That's true. And then for more on that, see a Rebel Roundtable blooper episode that you can find on StarWarsFanWorks.com oh. because it is way inappropriate for our network. <laughs> oh, 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 thanks. Thanks, Parent. Really? Really? <laughs> yes. yes. I it's don't know. Parents' fault. It's funny. I think we have the subtitle, though, now for this episode, though I can't imagine actually using it, which would be a fart on a fancy date. <laughs> because only the classiest humor on Star Wars Beyond the Films. <laughs> Although, you know, again, to be fair, they did just have – have I said this on this show before? Uh, I know I've said it on my live stream for Battlefront 2 – but uh, they did just release Escape from Vondren, the second of the Join the Resistance books, in which we learn that Kari Kun and Snap Wexley apparently got married at a ceremony that was overseen by J-Squad, so not to annoy or take the resources of anybody higher up in the Resistance. And it turns out that whatever food it was that they prepared um, was flatulence-inducing, so it was essentially the incredible farting wedding, and they spend two pages talking about how hilarious it was that everybody was farting at the wedding. Oh my god. I'm thinking that maybe we've stumbled upon something that's appropriate for Star Wars, and maybe at some point what we're going to see is an expansion and uh, farts will get their own spinoff comic series. Now that we've got a new guy in charge at Marvel, anything is possible. Uh, it'd be great if they just called him an expansion, too. I just had an expansion in my pants. <laughs> and how did that not become a clickbait article? You got Sana Solo being a clickbait article and all this other stuff becoming clickbait. <laughs> how did we not have all kinds of clickbait articles out there about how two Star Wars fans you didn't know got married actually did, and there was flatulence? <laughs> oh, great. Star Wars is down to fart and, <laughs> and fart jokes. <laughs> Oh, wait, that's just us. <laughs> oh. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It is our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars or Legends questions, or if you want to just hammer us for being a bunch of racist dickheads, just fire off. What? What? What the hell was that? 
speak for yourself, buddy. <laughs> I'm so glad that I had put my drink down. I know, I still did it so well, right? <laughs> you can always see most directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to thank our sponsors, Tops, once again, for everything you've done, and Tops Digital. Uh, and also, we've got Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash StarWarsReport, you can get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Audible has more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll get through an episode without Skype crapping out within seconds of the ending again. Or that Mark is going to piss off the internet with all his thoughts and ponders about race and ethnic groups and other things of that nature and art that morphs all the time. Because you know I did. I had to. <laughs> you see you see down there beside you? What you're doing right now is you're spinning in a circle with your lightsaber cutting the ground. I'm pretty sure you just dug a hole and dropped yourself into it. <laughs> the floor is Mustafar! <laughs> all right, that's it. We're out! <laughs>